And all the while, Murdoch says, well, I didn't know about it. I hired people. I trusted them. They let me down. You know, at some point, you have to ask yourself, why does this keep happening to Rupert Murdoch? <laughs> I mean... Hello, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright, here with my colleague Lisa Cohen. Good morning, Lisa. Hi, Abby. In this episode, we bring you a discussion between Bill Gruskin, our own professor here at Columbia, and Gabriel Sherman, New York Magazine editor and reporter extraordinaire. Gabe has been way out front on the coverage of Roger Ailes and this scandal all summer long, and he's been covering Roger for years even before that, so there was plenty to talk about. And for those of you who heard our first episode, you'll note that a few weeks ago we got started on our Women We Love series. Don't worry, we haven't forgotten about that. We'll get back to the women we love, we promise. But for now, instead we're going to talk about the women who brought down Roger Ailes. The discussion took place here at the Columbia Journalism School. It was called Fox News, American Politics, and the End of the Ailes Era. The Ailes story has dominated the news. All summer, it's not over yet. Briefly, in July, Gretchen Carlson sued her former boss for sexual harassment, and within 15 days, he was ousted from Fox, the company he created and ruled basically like his own private fiefdom. Over the summer, more women came forward, many of them to Gabe Sherman, and it started becoming mind-bogglingly clear just how deep and how widespread this issue went. In September, Carlson settled her suit for $20 million, in fact, the week of the event, here at the J School, and Greta von Susteren, one of Fox's top anchors, announced that she was leaving the company. Sherman's the author of a book on Ailes called The Loudest Voice in the Room. It's a thoroughly reported account of how Ailes built Fox in his image and reshaped both the media and American politics. In Sherman's book, two women go on the record about Ailes' inappropriate sexual advances. He told one woman he would give her an extra $100 a week if he could have sex with her whenever he wanted. Of course, now we know those were hardly isolated stories. So the legal investigation and Sherman's reporting is ongoing. He and Professor Gruskin had plenty to talk about. Joining us here today in the studio is Bill Gruskin himself to tell us more. Hello, Bill. Hi. How are you guys today? We're good. We're good. It was a fantastic, inspiring conversation the other night. Uh, Gabriel was really knows his, his beat. He's really... Uh, covered the hell out of it, and uh, it really showed. It's really interesting to see a journalist who has that level of uh, authority and depth on a beat. I imagine he has to be very careful right now, especially he's got Charles Harder breathing down his neck. He's, you know, Charles Harder is the attorney who represented Hulk Hogan in his lawsuit against Gawker and basically yes. shut down the place, and now he, he has yeah. and now threatened... Yeah, they basically sent New York Magazine a letter saying, please save all your correspondence... <laughs> Um, which is a possible, which is a step that lawyers take when they're contemplating action. This is a very, I mean, I'm not a lawyer. I don't even play one on TV, but, um, but uh, the legal matters or the legal background around this case is 179 degrees different from the Gawker Hulk Hogan case. I mean, Gabriel Sherman wasn't posting pictures of ales in flagrante delicto, you know, on New York Magazine's website. He was doing diligent day-by-day -day reporting. And and Ailes is very clearly a, a public figure. So, um, again, I'm not a lawyer, but 
the standards for any kind of lawsuit would be very, very high. Speaking of his diligence, one thing you've remarked on is the number of footnotes yeah. in his book yeah. about Fox News and Owls. Why was that so remarkable to you? So the book is 400 pages of text and 100 pages of the footnotes. And I actually think, you know, I teach her at the journalism school. I'm thinking about even constructing a lesson by having students read one chapter and then look at all the footnotes. And you know, some of the footnotes are understandably things like author's off-the-record interview with a source at Fox News or a source that wouldn't even identify it that closely. But many, many of them are, you know, um, from a memo dated, you know, July X, 2000 X, or from an on-the-record interview with Jack Welch or somebody like that, or, um, or, or other executives, or the brother of Ailes. Ailes' own brother talked to him at great length on the record. And in fact, Gabriel talked about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's really, uh, and you'll have a single page from the book that'll have eight or nine footnotes. And I just think it's a great lesson. And I think part of it was Gabriel knew that, you know, this this book was going to be examined very closely. But I think it's also in, in this day and age where a lot of journalists have a trust me attitude. You know, I talked to somebody off the record, and he sure it happened, and I'm not going to say who it was, and I'm not going to give you any indication as to how I corroborated it. This is a real antidote to that, and I think, uh, you know, you all teach here at the journalism school, too. I think this is a great, you know, object lesson for journalists. And can you talk a little bit about what he said in this session that was also particularly helpful to students? I know you discussed the mm-hmm. footnotes, but were there other t- takeaways that jumped well, to mind? Well, one of the things he talked about, and we do teach here, and I, I'm sure other journalism schools do, is I think his phrase was he felt like he was in a tele marketing effort, you know, where you have to place a thousand calls to get two people to buy your the vitamin supplement. Um, <laughs> he would place call after call after call, and obviously a lot of people either were closely tied to Ailes, so you know, they didn't want to say anything that might come over as negative, or their livelihoods or their family's livelihoods depended upon continued employment there. So you're obviously going to get a lot of hang-ups, a lot of people who refuse to talk to you. And uh, you have to just keep going at it, you know, call the next person or call the person back a week later and say, can you at least confirm this for me and that kind of thing. You know, um, uh, it's... It's really um, important not to underestimate the amount of, you know, cold calling and just pure grunt work that goes into good investigative journalism. It isn't just like one source slips you one document and suddenly you have a big story. It almost never works like that. Welcome, everybody. Good evening. We're very, very pleased to host Gabriel Sherman, whose official title is National Affairs Editor for New York Magazine, and as of just a few days ago, and uh, a contributor to NBC and MSNBC. Those are his titles, but they don't begin to convey his contribution to the American media landscape. For the last seven years, Gabe has been covering the American cable news industry with particular attention on Fox News and its founder, Roger Ailes. Gabe has been subject to harassment and investigations. As CNN recently reported, Fox and Ailes assembled a 400-page dossier on Gabe, checking into his internet history, his property records, even his voter registration information. And even today, Ailes' lawyers aren't letting up. One of them, the son of a former U.S. attorney, recently called Gabe, quote, 
a virus who is too small to exist on his own and has attached himself to the Ailes family, trying to suck the life out of them. So with that as our background, I think I can safely say this journalism school has never been so honored to play host to a virus. <laughs> I would also add that Mr. Ailes has a slight connection to Columbia Journalism School. He, he is, to the best of my knowledge, he's never spoken here. But he did, at one point, a few years ago, attribute an, an, an interview something to the school. He said, I owe all, all my success to the fact that I didn't go to Columbia Journalism School. <laughs> And I think those of us who are students and faculty here, I'm looking at one now, feel exactly the same way. <laughs> okay, on to you. Thanks, Bill. I think it's important to step back because in the crush of daily headlines, it can seem like uh, the story is really played out. But I think we are still in the middle of what I think will be remem remembered as one of the uh, seismic shifts in the American media landscape. Um, it took just 15 days from when Gretchen Carlson filed her lawsuit uh, for Roger Ailes to be pushed out the door of Fox News, uh, an institution that he built and shaped in his image, and in the process remade uh, American politics in his image. And it's no, no surprise uh, that Donald Trump is the Republican nominee. Uh, while it is, might seem surprising, it's actually inevitable, because the style uh, of politics, uh, the bombast, the entertainment values, the uh, loose connection with the truth that Trump uh, has made his trademark really has been uh, a staple of Fox News uh, from the moment Ailes founded the network in 96. And it has appealed to uh, millions uh, of Americans and Republican voters um, that has really remade the party in its image. So I think uh, whether or not you're, everyone here is interested in, in media, I imagine, but even if you're not a media junkie, uh, this story has resonance um, for, for the American public. Um, and so that is why I think Ailes is such a consequential figure, is that he transcends the world of television news. And he really is, uh, in the same way William Randolph Hearst and other media moguls were, uh, were icons of their era, who shaped their era uh, in their image. Ailes will, I, I imagine, will be remembered that way for the later part of the 20th and early 21st uh, century. So you've been on this beat a long time, like six or seven years, right? Yes, so I have, um, I have been covering uh, the television news business for uh, New York Magazine really since around uh, 2010. Uh, all of the major cable news networks, CNN, MSNBC, and in addition to, to Fox News. Um, tell us a little bit about kind of how have you seen the transition in the cable news business from when you began to where we are now? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great question. I think to answer it, um, which helps explain why I chose to write a book about Roger Ailes, um, I wrote a cover story for New York Magazine in 2010 uh, called Chasing Fox, um, which was uh, about the travails of CNN and MSNBC trying to uh, compete with Fox News, which at that point had twice the ratings of both of those networks combined, um, had uh, been dominating the cable news landscape since 2002. Really, what I, what I took away from that is that Roger Ailes had uh, developed something really unique and brilliant that these other networks uh, really couldn't get, get a hold of, which was how to communicate a message to a loyal audience of two to three million people on a given, given day. And I felt that I was sort of reporting around the real story on this beat, which was Fox News. So going into the book project, it wasn't a biography of Ailes. It was going to be a straight, linear history of the network. And early on into the reporting, um, I realized that I could not write that book, that the book actually was the story of Roger Ailes, because he had built Fox News in his image. 
And there was a quote he gave in an interview years ago that really uh, uh, stuck with me. And he said, I built this network from my life experience. And I thought a lot about that. And I said, well, what is in that life experience that led to um, this network that has such, had such an impact on on uh, American culture. And so that's where I decided uh, very early on in the reporting to shift gears and to really go deep and to understand his life story. A Ailes never spoke to you as part of the book, the reporting, right? I did, that's correct. I did get a chance to meet him on two occasions at public events. Uh, we had brief uh, interactions. I met him once uh, at a event at the Four Seasons restaurant in, uh, in Manhattan um, in which, um, he, uh, I guess it's similar to what I've experienced recently, he called me a harasser. Um, his, and I write about this in the book, his wife, uh, Elizabeth Ailes, said that I'm just trying to make a buck off her husband. Um, and really kind of they uh, projected, uh, they tried to you know, cast dispersions on my motives and I very uh, calmly said, I'm just trying to understand you, I'm reporting the story, I would love to, to reflect your point of view in the book. And he said, no, I'm not gonna grant an interview. Um, I, ra I ran into him a second time at the Kennedy Center um, in uh, the summer of 2012 in Washington, D.C. Um, and that was an even uh, briefer interaction. And when I went up to ask him an interview uh, at the re reception, his bodyguard uh, forcefully but politely moved me aside. So um, that was another way I felt he was saying that he was not going to sit for an interview. <laughs> Did you feel at any time he was talking to you through other people? For example, you talk, he has a brother mm -hmm. who he was pretty close to but had an interest, interesting relationship with, and his brother talked to you pretty extensively, mm -hmm. right? Yes. How, how did that come about? So that's, that's, that's a, also a really fascinating question. Um, so I, having not uh, secured an interview with Roger Ailes, and you know, pretty early on in the reporting, it was three years from when I started the book to when it was published, I realized I can't, I'm not going to write this book with you know, full access, so I was going to have to come up with other ways to tell the story. And the way I did that was I really just decided I'm going to go out and try to talk to almost every single person I can find who had either worked with Roger Ailes, been a friend of his, member of his family, uh, consult documents, archives, books, articles. So it was almost like a pointillist painting where I was trying to, you know, collect all of these, uh, you know, sort of individual dots of information and assemble them into a, a cohesive picture. And in the case of Roger Ailes' brother, I um, went on a reporting trip to Warren, Ohio, where the Ailes family grew up. Uh, it's an industrial town in northeast Ohio between Youngstown and Cleveland. Uh, Ohio. And in the 1940s and 50s, when the Ailes family uh, was raising their children, it was a booming post-war industrial town. And when I went there, um, it looked like the aftermath of uh, like a, a war zone. It was just, you know, the factories were shuttered, the houses were boarded up. And I went and I met people who grew up with the family. And while I was there, you know, on a lark, I said, I'm going to call Roger Ailes' brother, who's a doctor who lives in Florida, and, um, you know, expecting a hostile reaction. And this is one of these sort of amazing sh sort of uh, occurrences of sort of good fortune where um, it turns out that Ailes' brother Robert is an amateur genealogist. Um, and he has written an unpublished memoir, A History of the Ailes Family. And um, I, I don't know, but I imagine he, there was something about me being in Warren, Ohio, and really taking an interest um, in the Ailes family history that connected with him. And we, uh, we struck up this dialogue where over the series of several very lengthy phone interviews, we just talked at length about 
the Ailes family, his parents, his father's abusiveness, the parents' um, very messy divorce in 1960. And it's one of these cases where I just, um, you know, you'll never, you'll never know if someone won't talk to you if, unless you try. And, uh, and he's, I, I'm very grateful uh, to Robert for sharing his stories. One of the interesting things in the Gretchen Carlson lawsuit is she has quotes from Ailes basically making the propositions to her, making clear that her future depended on it. And it turns out, it looks like she had a tape recorder going on, which for those of you who are wondering, in this state, you can actually have one person permission on tape recording, but journalism students don't do this as a regular thing. Do you have a sense of anything else that she might have or whether others might have done anything like that? Or? Yeah, so, um, so in my New York Magazine piece that is uh, out this week, um, one of the things that I reported is that beginning in 2014, uh, Gretchen Carlson began uh, bringing her iPhone to meetings and turning the culture of surveillance that Roger Ailes had built at Fox News back on him. And I think there's kind of an irony and a kind of a brilliance to that, that she, again, as Bill said, it's a one-party consent state. She was very legal in doing that. And what is... <laughs> What we now know that it was on those tapes was, was so damaging was that it was worth $20 million to the parent company, uh, 21st Century Fox, that paid her a settlement this week. And one of the things I understand from the negotiations is that um, the transcripts were, were so lengthy that the company decided they, did not, they could not afford to have those out there. So they very quickly moved to settlement talks. When you say the transcripts were so lengthy, you mean the extent of the sexual yeah, so, harassment? Yeah, so, oh. Well, the or, sexual harassment uh, and other offensive comments. Oh, I see. Yeah. Mm. Kind of makes you sorry it didn't go to trial, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um. But we should point out that um, my understanding is that those tapes still exist. So if there's future litigation, if, say, another woman mm -hmm. would file a lawsuit, they could always be subpoenaed in court. Okay. What do you make, let's kind of push it forward more to the last few months. What do you make of the response by the Rupert the Murdoch himself to this situation? It's, it's, in some ways, it feels a little bit like the phone hacking situation in the UK. But on the other hand, this is one where it feels like there was collusion mm -hmm. from both some of Vale's own deputies as well as from the legal department and that kind of thing. What do you make of how Murdoch himself is uh, handling it and the way he's responded to it? So when, when the Carlson lawsuit was filed, um, it, it sort of landed at a moment when Ailes' position at Fox News was becoming more precarious than anyone, including myself and Gretchen Carlson, probably imagined. Um, you know, in the past, when Roger Ailes got into uh, public scandals, Rupert Murdoch uh, defended him, even when it meant Ailes was clashing with uh, Murdoch's adult children. Uh, famously, in 2005, when uh, Murdoch's heir apparent, uh, Lachlan Murdoch, um, clashed with Ailes, um, Rupert Murdoch chose Ailes and Lachlan left the company. So that just shows you the extent to which Ailes had corporate power that Murdoch was going to choose him over his own family. But when this lawsuit was filed this summer, um, the Murdoch sons, Lachlan and James Murdoch, had been promoted by their father to co-leadership positions at the media empire. And both of the Murdoch children had no love lost for Roger Ailes. Um, and they used this sexual harassment scandal uh, to really drive their agenda, which was to get him out of the company and to reform Fox News and make it uh, into less of a polarizing, um, a controversial uh, network that, that it was under Ailes. And so to the degree that Murdoch was involved, I think it shows you the generational transition. 
that he doesn't have the power in the past where he would have defended Ailes uh, against his children's wishes. By this point, they had the leverage to say to their father, this is, this is going to be a messy public scandal. They hired an outside law firm to investigate the allegations. And by that point, once it was public, there was little Murdoch could do to protect him. But at the same time, uh, Murdoch chose Bill Shine, who was one of Vale's top deputies, yeah. to basically stay in charge of the place. So it's not like we're seeing any kind of a wholesale shift sure. in, in its editorial philosophy or anything along those lines, right? In the near term, yes, that's right. Where uh, he promoted Ailes's longtime deputy, Bill Shine, who we could talk about in a moment, who uh, was very uh, closely aligned with Ailes and was in a position. He says he did not, but he was in a position to know about this culture of sexual harassment at Fox News. And what I understand from talking to people up and down the network is that it's really in a holding pattern, that um, they're looking for a permanent CEO. Uh, and most likely there will be, after the November election, uh, more of a whole scale house cleaning. So Fox is, it's actually the, the 21st Century Fox, I guess is what it's called now, the corporation. They're a publicly traded company. They have a responsibility to the shareholders, to the employees. Um, yet it does appear, and I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how you view how um, both the PR side of Fox and the general counsel's office at Fox has sort of handled not just this uh, immediate thing with Gretchen Carlson, but some of the scandals over the last few years. Because it does feel to an outsider, having read your stories and Sarah Ellison's and others, that, that the corporation would, would close ranks around activity mm -hmm. that is not legally permitted in American workplaces. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think one of the things that, that uh, my story showed, and as you mentioned, Sarah Ellison has done very uh, strong coverage for Vanity Fair, um, is that this was a culture of, that Ailes created that enabled widespread sexual harassment by him, but also by other senior executives and hosts at Fox News. Um, and it was a culture where women who wanted to come forward felt like they couldn't because they would be, as one told me in an interview, they would be labeled like a complainer or they couldn't get along with the, you know, couldn't take a joke. And one of the most remarkable things that I, that I saw is the way Ailes used the network to systematically cover up this behavior that, uh, that was shocking and, and grotesque. And he did it by using all aspects. So he used the Fox News legal department to sign these very restrictive settlements that would prevent women from speaking publicly with strong non-disclosure provisions. Um, he used the Fox News public relations department to leak damaging information about any employee that might speak to the press. And I, we can talk maybe about the Lori Loon story. But one of the things that I found most disturbing about that story was um, Ailes put out a rumor that Lori Loon had had uh, an affair, a sexual affair, with the late Republican operative Lee Atwater, which Lori Loon steadfastly denied. And the New York Daily News, uh, that rumor made its way to the New York Daily News. Um, and the tabloid was writing about that. And Lori Loon wanted to go on the record, she told me, to deny this. And Ailes would not let her speak to the paper. And the paper printed uh, it, a version that it didn't explicitly say she had an affair, but implied it. And uh, her feeling was that he wanted to her to seem promiscuous so that if she ever did come forward, her credibility would be uh, questioned by the public that, oh, well, if she had this affair with Atwater, what, you know, she's just you know, having an affair with Ailes. What's the big deal? 
And that, to me, is where I see uh, you know, a really shocking abuse of power uh, where Mur uh, Murdoch allowed Ailes to use this network to advance his personal uh, agenda and cover up this, this harassment. Now, we should point out, Ailes has denied it by all accounts that none of these episodes happened. Bill Shine, his deputy, and Diane Brandy, the general counsel at Fox, have also denied knowing about Ailes' uh, behavior with women. But from my position as a reporter who's covered the story uh, for five years, uh, covered Ailes for five years, and this, this scandal all summer, I think it's impossible to say that these people did not at least have some idea of what was going on. There's, there's a kind of meme going out there that if or when Trump loses the election, uh, the next day he's going to start some kind of a network or some kind of a media company that would counter-program against Fox. Um, and there's also a lot of talk, which appears to be confirmed that Ailes himself is personally advising Trump on his debate prep and that kind of thing. Where do you see Fox, you know, Fox's role in American political discussion has been, you know, uh, pretty idiosyncratic for the last 16 years or so. Where do you see it going now in terms of American politics, and where would you see Trump fitting into that if he doesn't win? So the problem that Fox News has is that under Roger Ailes for 20 years, it was this umbrella that covered the entire spectrum of the conservative firmament from the conspiracy-minded far right, you had Glenn Beck, if we all remember on Fox News, to the most uh, establishment GOP um, figures in the Beltway um, and intellectuals uh, and thinkers like Charles Krauthammer. So you had this whole cast of characters that sort of represented every strain of, of American conservatism. And Ailes's both success, he doled out contracts, it was very lucrative. Everyone in Republican life in America who want, was ambitious wanted a contract on Fox. I had conservatives tell me if you wanted to sell a book, you, if you weren't booked on Fox, your books wouldn't sell. So Ailes was able to use that to corral everyone under the Fox tent. And um, what's happening now, it's kind of fascinating, and it's, there's also an irony to it. For, for years, Ailes and the Republicans ran against the, quote, liberal media as biased and as the establishment, that the mainstream, you could not trust the mainstream media. And now what's happening, now that Ailes is out of the picture, you have all the other conservative websites. Uh, Breitbart is obviously the most well-known example on the far right, telling their viewers, don't trust Fox, because Fox is the Republican establishment. So they're using that attack line back against Fox to chip away at their audience. So the fracturing that we saw in the media with the rise of Fox News and talk radio, we're now seeing that same splintering happening on the far right. And so this audience that Ailes had of 2 million is just going to be you know, carved up by niche websites that speak you know, to you know, Breitbart is a populist website. Uh, you have the Weekly Standard that speaks to the neoconservative um, uh, audience. I mean, you're going to see conservatism just you know, micro-targeted to all of the individual audiences. But you just said that their audience was two million, which is kind of at at the apex, right? It, we're a country of 325 million people. What accounts for Fox's outsized influence relative to the size of its audience? So that's a great question. I've wrestled with that one because, again, if you look at the numbers, it's it's exactly right. It's it's minuscule compared to our population. But it's this echo effect. It's this daily message discipline that Fox exerted. Uh, on the culture. And you had the fact that Ailes was such a kingmaker in Republican politics. I mean, let's remember, he helped repackage Nick, Richard Nixon as his television advisor in 1968. 
He ran George H.W. Bush's media campaign in 1988. He was an advisor to Reagan in 84. I mean, Roger Ailes was on a first-name basis speed dial with every major Republican uh, in America. And so the message discipline that Fox had had the spillover effect of bringing the whole Republican Party into line with what Fox was talking about. And the other thing I should say is, yes, while it's only 2 million people, Fox viewers vote. And so the Republican establishment in DC uh, couldn't afford to, to alienate Fox News. I mean, I just want to back up for a second. If you go back to the 2012 election, uh, and this has been, been reported uh, uh, before, Mitt Romney, there was a stretch where he was almost speaking exclusively to Fox News, and especially the morning show, Fox and Friends, which is the most circus-like carnival show on Fox. I mean, it's one, actually one of my favorite shows. Because if, if you really want to know what Ailes was, was thinking and talking about, you needed to watch Fox and Friends because he would sort of pipe in his talking points to the host, Steve Ducey, and others. And you think about a guy like Mitt Romney who went to uh, Harvard Business School. He's a, a, a really kind of buttoned-up executive. Would you think that Mitt Romney would really want to spend most of his time talking to Fox and Friends? Well, probably not. But he knew that the audience of the Republican base that he was trying to reach um, would really be tuned into that to that program. So that's, a, that's an example where, yes, it's a small number, but the Republicans felt this need to have to deal with them. So Bill, at that point, you took a lot of audience questions, and there were a lot of them, and you did it in a little bit different way than we typically do when we do events. Sure. We, uh, we decided to set up an uh, email address where people could email questions in, either people who were at the event or the program was being broadcast live on Facebook Live. And so in any kind of event, I'm sure you've been in these where somebody gets up to ask a question and, and it becomes a sermon rather than a question, and this way I didn't have to cut people off. At a certain point, I think people in the crowd came up with other questions, which is understandable, and they started raising their hands. And, and, um, and you I, succumbed to temptation. And, and I kowtowed to the hoi polloi. What are you going to do at a certain point? So we have a lot of questions in the queue, um, so thank you for that. So I'm going to uh, dive right in. There was one that was sent very early by Beverly Wettenstein. Oh, there you are right there. Um, about why did Carlson settle for $20 million, not go to a public trial, although maybe that's one of those questions that sort of answers itself. But, um, and uh, and how, will, how will Carlson's use of the tapes in the meetings like this affect the future women trying to collect evidence? So to the answer to the question of why she didn't go to trial, uh, you know, Margaret Sullivan wrote a piece in the Washington Post that asked that very question. And while there is clearly a public interest uh, in, a, in a trial airing these things in an open courtroom. You know, I think that's a lot to ask uh, somebody. I mean, I think what she has done already is incredibly brave um, and went through to great personal risk. And, you know, trial is very expensive. I mean, she's a very wealthy woman. Her husband is a very successful sports agent. But to take this all the way through trial, which would, could go on a year, two, three years, and the prospect of losing, um, is asking a lot, and maybe in the ideal world that's what someone would do, but that's asking a lot for, for somebody to do. So um, I think she settled because she wants to move on, um, and I think $20 million, there's 20 million reasons not to settle. So, um, Abby Wright has a question. What was your scariest encounter with the Ailes the machine? And I, I guess to build on that, when Brian Stelter had the story about how they had compiled a 400-page dossier, did like you have any inkling b beforehand that, the, that they were tracking you and following you? Yeah, I had heard 
I had heard in, uh, that he had had uh, private investigators following me and, and my wife, um, who was uh, working and editing the manuscript of the book. Um, and you know, I think the scariest moment was, um, I think, the end of 2000. Uh, it was Christmas time when um, 2012, when uh, the website Breitbart, which now is famous uh, for being aligned with Trump. Uh, splashed an article about me uh, on the homepage that I was being paid by George Soros, and I was an attack. I think it labeled me an attack dog, Soros-funded attack dog. And uh, we got a death threat at home. Um, phone rang, and someone very scary on the phone said some very scary things. And you know, I don't, uh, as a reporter, I don't have you know, ails, you know, the sort of right-wing machine does this to to politicians, but they have you know. Security and all this, you know, we don't even have a doorman at home. So I felt in that moment very, very alone. We fi I filed a police report with the NYPD, and then uh, Jen and I quickly left and took the train down to Pennsylvania to, um, to we were going home for Christmas anyways, but we stayed with her, her family just to kind of get a change of scenery. And I think in that moment, I just was, it was the first time it internalized for me that I was, you know, Ailes is a very powerful man. He has access to you know, not only a lot of money, but he had relationships across the media that he could then turn and train on me. But throughout the whole thing, even when it was very scary and stressful, I tried to use it as actually just a reporting, more reporting. Because you know, when you think about character, character is what we do, not what we say, but also what we do. So the lengths he was going to try to control his narrative and suppress my reporting, I just treated that as him revealing himself. And this was one of his tactics. And I didn't take it personally. And I just tried to keep my head down. And while it was scary, I just said, I'm going to just continue to keep reporting the story. Have you seen the 400 page the dossier? That I have not. I, uh, read the, I read the coverage uh, in CNN. And uh, from what uh, Brian Stelter wrote, I, I was sort of laughing after the fact, now that, the, that this is over. Uh, that you know that these PIs, it must have been like the easiest money they ever made because <laughs> you know the things that were in this dossier were like the most mundane things. I mean, they even had like my marathon running times. So it's like you're you're really you're really scraping the barrel if you're trying yeah. to like use you know my running hobby as a as a weapon against. I was gonna me. say you seem like a very interesting person, but I'm not sure I'd read 400 pages of yeah. that. <laughs> it's like it's longer than my book. <laughs> right. Um, Acacia O'Connor asks that about the New York Magazine piece, I assume the one that's right up there, um, that it relies a lot on unnamed sources. Can you talk about that process, how hard it is to get people in the Fox orbit to speak to you on the record, and how you worked with your editors on that? Yes, yeah, so, so on the sourcing question, um, yes, there are uh, a, a lot of background sources um, in the book. Um, as any reporter feels, I'm sure, on the, I always push for on-the-record interviews. I think I believe in transparency. That's, that's important. But with many stories, especially this story, there are certain things you're just not going to get unless you can uh, 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 grant a source anonymity and promise them that you'll protect their confidence no matter what. Um, and especially with a story like Fox, where I had sources who were so paranoid and scared, they would call me from burner phones, you know, the ones that you buy in cash, like you see in The Wire. Um, and you had, I had you know, sources who would meet me in the strangest of places, in the most anonymous places in Manhattan, um, because they you know, didn't even want to be talking to me on the telephone. But it, it shows the degree to which Ailes um, tried to control his story. And as I reported in this New York Magazine piece, um, uh, Fox went even so far, according to two sources with direct knowledge, 
the general counsel, Diane Brandy, hired a private investigator in 2010 um, to obtain the private home and cell phone records of uh, reporter Joe Strupp, who worked for the, uh, works for the liberal watchdog group Media Matters. So when the network is uh, obtaining a journalist's phone records and monitoring all the internal communications of its employees, it creates a chilling effect on sources willing yeah. to speak to a journalist. So um, that, is, that is one of the reasons I had to promise people who would tell me the truth about what was going on inside Fox anonymity. What, and this actually picks up a question from Betsy West, another faculty member. What's the reaction been at New York Magazine when you got the warning from the lawyer in the Gawker case? About you know, we've, it's, been, it's been great. They've been very supportive. The, the, uh, Charles Harder, who represented Hulk Hogan in the Gawker suit, um, sent us a letter, did not outline um, any specific, didn't take any specific issue with, uh, with my reporting. Um, and, you know, this comes with the territory when you write about very powerful, wealthy uh, people, they, you know, they have the resources to hire a lawyer. But, um, you know, I'm keeping my head down, just doing my work, and, you know, uh, there's nothing to respond to until, uh, until they outline specifics. So, you know, we're just going to, you know, it's not going to deter me from continuing to cover, you know, what is still a breaking news story. Uh, Reg Chua asks about the fracturing of the conservative Republican audience in the post-Ales era. Does that mean it's a weakening of the machine that the party runs, or is it more of a, a media situation? Oh, it's clearly both. I mean, I think Trump is uh, exhibit A for uh, the entire Republican establishment, which used to be uh, covered in this, by this Fox umbrella, had no power to, to stop him during the primaries. Um, and even Rupert Murdoch, who didn't like Trump, told Roger Ailes um, to cut out boosting Trump last summer. Um, and they allowed the Fox News moderators at the uh, opening Republican debate in Cleveland to ask Trump to hammer him with tough questions. You know, Trump was impervious to that because the audience, the reality is that the Republican base that Fox spoke to was very much the Trump voter, was the, the populist, blue-collar, older, white voter. And so um, Fox has lost its power. Fox used to bring that voter into line with what the establishment wanted. If you look at the last, the candidates, you know, Fox, um, George, George W. Bush in 2000, 2004, John McCain in 2008, Mitt Romney in 2012. I mean, these are not populist right-wing uh, candidates. And finally, because of, uh, because this audience is, has fractured and there's not one place to get your news, the base, kind of the, the base of the party took over, and that's why we've ended up with Trump. So actually, speaking of Trump, can you tell us about the, the Ailes-Trump camaraderie? Kind of how far back does that go? Has it had its, its uh, ups and downs? I mean, he's uh, been a guest on, yeah. on the network a lot. Yeah, so it, it, you know, Roger Ailes and Donald Trump are really contemporaries. Uh, they're both men of the same generation. They've known each other for decades as kind of New York media power brokers. And they're personal friends, and Roger Ailes really, um, you know, believes in a lot of the, has told people that he shares a lot of the, the same issues that, uh, that Trump has, especially immigration. You know, Trump wants to build the wall. Well, you know, that's kind of a, a more moderate position than Ailes is. In my book, I, I report that Ailes wanted uh, to send Navy SEALs to the southern border to shoot anyone crossing. So, I mean, this is, these are kind of two guys cut out of the same cloth. Um, Roger Ailes had lunch with Donald Trump Shortly before he launched his campaign, he kind of he fed him, according to my reporting, political advice throughout the primary, and even before the 2016 election, 
uh, Ailes gave Trump a weekly call-in segment on the Fox and Friends show that allowed Trump to sound off on political issues, to test the waters, especially on issues of immigration, to see how the audience would respond. And as Trump told me in one of my interviews, that was the most highly rated segment of the week uh, on Fox and Friends, which he was proud to, to point out. Um, so so that's, that's a way of saying that they have been allies. Now, that's not to say there hasn't been tension. And I think we all remember uh, last year uh, the, fame, the feud between Megyn Kelly and Donald Trump that kind of caught Ailes in the middle in his loyalty between his friend and political uh, project Trump and his star, Megyn Kelly. Uh, and that created some turbulence. But I think on the whole, Ailes has firmly been in Trump's corner. I'm going to take a few more questions, and then we're going to do a hard stop, as they say in the TV business. So, uh, okay, we'll start with the, the, the woman in the second row, and then we'll go back. Um, question. Um, do you feel, you know, you said it was structured so that you know, these, these deals didn't have to be reported to Murdoch, mm -hmm. the corporation. Do you feel it was structured so that, like that in part so that there'd be some plausible deniability? Yeah, I think... Whether it was uh, by design or by just the, the, the culture of, that, of Murdoch's media empire, he wants plausible deniability. I mean, that's the way he runs his business, uh, which I guess you could say is conscious because he hires executives, and as long as they're making profits, he doesn't ask questions and he doesn't want to know. Uh, and so this was... This happened in the UK at the News of the World. It happened at Fox News. If you remember the News, uh, News America Marketing, which was their supermarket uh, distribution company, had a, 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 a surveillance, a, a hacking scandal of their own. So this has sort of happened time and again across Murdoch's media properties, where something blows up. There's you know press coverage, scandals, uh, lawsuits, investigations. And all the while, Murdoch says, well, I didn't know about it. I hired people. I trusted them. They let me down. You know, at some point, you have to ask yourself, why does this keep happening to Rupert Murdoch? <laughs> I mean, gosh, you know, chucks, like Roger Ailes, it happened to me again. I mean, you have to wonder whether he, whether he you know, really doesn't want to know or, or does know. I think that the record is such that he has to, at some point, I think, take some ownership you know, his name is on the door. He built this company. I think he bears the responsibility. Gotcha. Uh, right. This was really fun, and I learned a lot, and I know everybody else here did and about Facebook. Thank, Thank you. you. That was a really insightful conversation, Bill. Thanks for making all that happen. I know it wasn't easy. But let's switch gears right now briefly because here at On Assignment, we typically spend a few minutes talking about our recommendations for the week, things we've seen or read or heard that we were particularly impressed with. Yes, we make recommendations of something, a film, a okay. show, a story that has stayed with us. Do you have anything you want to share with the group? Well, it's not really journalism, but uh, I saw the movie Hell or High Water, which uh, is just... I just think it, it actually has journalistic aspects to it, even though it's it's obviously all fictional. But it's about a couple of bank robbers in Western Texas and the Southern Oklahoma being chased by by cops who are de determined to find them, and uh, it gives a sense of place of that part of the world. That's that's really a remarkable thing, I think. 
And is, is it kind of a spaghetti western kind of stuff? Um, it it has western elements to it, but it's very much couched in uh, the idea that after the economic crisis of 2008, a lot of people were upside down on their mortgages. They had lost their jobs, and the bank robbers, without giving away too much, um, were people who had been. Um, victimized by some of the events that were going on then, and they decided to rob banks to make up for it. And, you know, there are a lot of themes about what's really right and wrong and what are the ethics of, you know, holding up a bank that you feel stole money from you. Um, I just think it's terrific. And it's not journalism per se, but it's really examining an issue that exactly. was much in yeah. the news. Yeah, very much. Yeah. I haven't seen it, but I'm, well, now I will. Yeah, you should. And we were going to talk about a documentary we both have seen, and which was nonfiction, but could have been fiction. Just should have been fiction have almost. Been. The the Wiener. Well, I, I knew you were going to say <laughs> Wiener. If if, if if all you had been fiction, yeah, I yes, saw that yes. recently. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's really cut, compelling. Pretty yeah. remarkable. Yeah, the it, access yeah. and yeah. the events yeah. as they unfolded and yeah. the characters. Yeah, and especially his wife, and uh, you just see her face. You know, she's trying to steel herself against every act. To say, I came away from it so sympathetic to her. I. Yeah. I mean, I understand that she didn't want all of that aired in public, but having said that, you know, yeah. the, the public responded. Mm-hmm. Certainly, I did by you know being in her corner. I also felt sympathy for his whole communication staff. I mean, oh, you're God. in with them when the right. when it's breaking about the latest episode, and exactly. you know, you just feel the exactly yeah. depression falling through the room. And you also realize he has or had some innate talent as oh, a, yeah. as a politician. So there's also sort of some the, sadness about the squandering of yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. I yeah. remember sort of the comeback story and mm-hmm. kind of yeah. wanting to get on board with that narrative and then having yeah. it just yeah yeah crater yeah it's, but it's a very well told tale. It is. It's yes. really well done. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bill, for dropping by. Anytime. Thank you. So we should just add that Wiener, the film, not the man is coming to our Film Fridays documentary series, although the directors will be here, on November 11th. Uh, So join us and see the film for yourself. That's it for this episode. And this episode of On Assignment was produced by our brand new podcast producer and former journalism student here, Chava Gurari. Thanks, as always, to our funders at the Jesse Baldupont Fund and to Columbia. Our music is by Dylan Nowak. And our sound engineer is A.J. Mangone. Follow us on Twitter at OnAssignmentPod. And let us know what you think in a review on iTunes. And be sure to subscribe on iTunes as well. Until next time, everybody. 